Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream podcast. If you can hear us in the chat, please drop us a little note to make sure we're, we're coming through loud and clear. Um, I'm going to introduce our guest today. We've got a special guest today. It is a literary manager at the Gotham Group. She is also a producer of animation, anime, and live action, specializing in genre fare and comic book IP. Uh, she's developed original content for Crunchyroll and Adult Swim and has worked at Freeform, Boom Studios, the Gersh Agency, and Village Roadshow, among many others. She's awesome. She's Hillary Levi. Welcome to the Hello. show, Hillary. We're so glad to Hi. have you on. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, so, um, the audience that has gathered here is is very interested in the fact that you are a literary manager, which we'll get into. You're also, as we were discussing before we came on, uh, have been on the buying side, which is fantastic. You've developed, you've produced, you've done, a, uh, you've done everything, which is fantastic. <laughs> so we can pick your brain in so many different areas. Uh, if you're in the chat and you want to ask questions for Hillary, please drop them in the comments in the chats and we'll get to them as soon as we can. But before we get to some of the audience questions, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your background. How did you get started in the entertainment industry? What was it that drove you to Hollywood, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I grew outside, I grew up outside of Atlanta um, in a suburb called Kennesaw. And both of my parents really loved all things, you know, entertainment um, and especially movies. They were early adopters of Netflix. Uh, and, you know, when the DVDs would come in the mail, which at the time, not a lot of people were using them. Mm -hmm. I think we were the only family in our neighborhood for a minute to have it. So they would come really quickly. Uh, and they would get these DVDs and we would sit down on a Friday night and we would be like, we're going to show you this movie. And that's how I watched the right stuff and American graffiti and life is beautiful and all these movies. Um, but in addition to that, um, I just loved performing. I was the firstborn child. So of course I liked the attempt, <laughs> um, and, and did dance and chorus and, and theater and, and all those kinds of things. But my dad was a computer programmer. And so, you know, grew up in a household where, where things that were very nerdy and lots of video games in my household. Uh, so I played games like Myst and Journeyman Project and Quake. And I really do think it was video games that, that started to teach me about, you know, this, this way to tell stories that was really engaging and it just sucked you in. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, my dad, you can see my copies of Dune over here. <laughs> my dad introduced me to Dune and Neuromancer and all of these sci-fi and fantasy, you know, TV shows and movies and books and all that kind of stuff. And I loved it so much. I have a Dune tattoo. Uh, and so that really, I think were the foundations of everything. And when I was 17, you know, I wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do in mm -hmm. the business. I I wanted to be in entertainment, thought maybe theater, wasn't sure if it was Hollywood. And I knew like acting wasn't going to be a thing that was going to work out. My dad was like, well, what if you went behind the camera? And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. And so I being the, you know, A plus type student that I was and, and being very driven on the fact that I knew I, I wanted to get out of Georgia. Um, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for me there. So I thought at the time they had, right. well, you know, they hadn't started shooting mm -hmm. 
uh, Walking Dead there until right. after I moved away. And uh, I was like, well, what's, what are the best film schools? I'm just going to go there. Uh, and crazily enough, I still to this day, I don't know how I bamboozled my way into the USC film school uh, and did that and spent four years there as a film and production, film and TV production major. And then realized I didn't really enjoy being on set mm. <laughs> and really loved talking about scripts, but knew I wasn't a screenwriter, knew that that was, I would just took everything too personally. Hmm. for me but I want to talk about this I understand structure I understand story I love having these discussions how do I do that and I made a joke in class one day being like oh how do I just talk about scripts all day and they were like that's development and I said what's development <laughs> and uh and then I had some other friends of mine who really liked the notes that I gave them on their scripts and they said you should be a manager so I knew very early on when I was in college, I either wanted to be a manager or a development executive. Mm -hmm. And now I'm fortunate enough in my life that I've done both. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And so a, a fellow Trojan, right on. Um, on. The, uh, I know that when I was back then in film school, there started to be this trend of, of uh, people coming out of film school not just wanting to be directors, wanting to do other things. Um, and representation, I guess, is is one of them, especially as a, a lit manager, as opposed to an agent, which is much more structured business. There's all mm -hmm. kinds of restrictions and things. But as a manager, you know, being able to develop material with clients and, and become a, you know, produce certain things and mm -hmm. um, which is fantastic and, and reaches into your uh, nature of, of making things right? As opposed to just kind of shepherding the business along the chain. Mm -hmm. um, but having worked on both sides as, you know, a buyer, the buyer side and the selling side, what sort of perspective mm -hmm. does that give to you? And how does it help when you're working with clients who may not understand that, you know, there are different sides of the table here? Yes, absolutely. I think, what I, my background uniquely sets me up to have some very frank discussions with clients that I think they maybe haven't been having, um, in the past with, with previous reps, mm -hmm. um, or maybe reps that, that don't have that background. And I'm, this isn't to shame any of my colleagues who have incredible amounts of knowledge and experience in the business, but being able to get into an executive psyche mm -hmm. is incredibly important. And, you know, I think a lot of people, especially young folks who start in the business, I don't mean young as an age, I just mean fresher people who haven't had as much experience, you know, actually sitting down and teaching them and walking them through, like, this is what an executive thinks of you in a meeting. This is what is going through their mind. And if I were an executive sitting across the Zoom or the table from you, this is what I would think if you said that to me. Hmm. Um, I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or otherwise. I'm just saying it happens. Right. And so, you know, it, it's like they're thinking all of these things and you need to understand that their job is trying to convince their boss, regardless of what level they are, unless they are the final decision maker. But when you're getting into a network, like even a network head has to report to the finance team, you know, right. mm -hmm. um, and, you know, trying to explain to them, like, there, there's not just like, yes, and we go. There's like, 
yes, start, stop, stop, start, stop. Like it, you know, um, there's a lot of different things that go through an exec's head. And, um, sometimes I've even had to walk through my clients with like, okay, you believe in this idea. Now pretend you're a producer. Now tell me whether or not, where would you take that show? Mm -hmm. Why would you take it there? Well, HBO is not buying whatever idea is thing. You have to take it somewhere else. You have to take it somewhere else. Like we walk, I walk them through kind of like, here's what you're producing. Here's what you're asking a producer to do mm -hmm. so that we, we sort of, uh, it's not just what goes on the page. There's so much, it doesn't happen in a bubble. Right. And you had mentioned age, like newer writers, younger writers, but attributing it to people who are newer to the industry, not necessarily biological age. Uh, we do have a number of writers, although we were talking earlier, and a good majority of our audience is uh, in the younger speaking mm -hmm. category, you know, the 20s, 30s. But we do have a number of writers who are in the, you know, the older categories. And, they're, you know, we get questions asked a lot about ageism. How prevalent is it? How, as you, as a rep, are you, uh, do you guide clients in that way? If you've signed an, an older client, would you sign an older client? And also like, if you did, what sort mm -hmm. of, of special sort of uh, planning would you have mm -hmm. to do, or would you do, if any, uh, once mm -hmm. you get them out there, like, would you make note of it? Would you just not mention it? Uh, how does that come into play? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends. Um, well, there's a couple of different questions in mm -hmm. there. The quest yeah. first question is like, do I sign older quote unquote writers? Do you know, do I have older writers? Yes. I like to think that I like to use the term life experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do have some older, you know, folks, um, and I, I don't like to use that word older sure. because I think that there's like, well, I'm not, I'm in my forties. I'm not old. And mm -hmm. like, no one's saying you're old because 40 is not old. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, you know, I have some clients in their forties. I have some clients that I've signed, um, in their early fifties. And, you know, I have clients who even haven't worked in a minute who are older, who are kind of, you know, in between jobs. And so you sort of have to focus on each person really individually. It's not, uh, there's not a one size fits all approach to, to clients who um, have more life experience. Mm -hmm. um, it's about what that life experience brings that's relevant. So mm -hmm. if I have a client who spent a lot of time as a teacher, uh, in, you know, LAUSD and they want to write kids content to me, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, they understand how to teach. Mm -hmm. They get, you know, that early childhood education, of course, they're going to be a good fit. Uh, so that to me is something that I want to play up. You know, if they, uh, have a really specific background, I want to highlight that if, if it's not necessary to bring it up, mm -hmm. if there's like, okay, I can't find quite, can't, can't quite find the right way in, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. sometimes I may not bring it up, but I don't, I like talking about it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because there is always, there is something to find. I have yet to find a way in, uh, but we'll see. There's a first time for everything. Right. Right. And 
I'm going to head this question off because I know a lot of, we've gotten it recently quite a bit. And it's about IP, which I know is uh, sort of a specialty of yours. Um, we've gotten a lot of questions about why so much uh, new material and new films and television is all based on IP. And a second question, a follow-up is uh, for writers out there who are trying to break in and does it behoove them to try to develop their own IP first? Will that help the process along, i.e. developing a comic book or writing a book no. or anything like that? No, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> no, it's I good to know. They need to hear this. About it. Yeah. I, I maybe disagree with a lot of people sure. on the record side or you know that kind of stuff but we'll get to that in a minute since I mm -hmm. really do have the answer teaming up because I get asked that question a lot mm -hmm. um why is the industry focusing more on IP you know I think we can quarterback it all day long um but the general consensus is that the industry is incredibly risk averse mm -hmm. especially in the world of streaming and I think that IP is much maligned by many people who are like, there's nothing original. There's nothing, you know, that, that, that there's nothing original. And I agree. There's not a lot of things that are original in terms of, especially when it comes to genre content, which is my specialty. And that's because fans are really important. Mm -hmm. Like, fans bring the numbers and as a fan I consume if I love something so much I want to consume it in every format I possibly can so I can't get mad me personally I can't get mad at that fact mm -hmm. because if I love Star Wars there's my cat <laughs> <laughs> um speaking of what she's named after a Game of Thrones character so which one um, well, she's a uh, Nymeria named after Arya's mm. Direwolf, and I can't get her down. Hi, baby. Thank you. Um, so I just want to consume it. I want to consume comic books. I want to consume video games. I want to mm -hmm. do all this stuff. So when people are angry about the fact that there's nothing original, I'm sitting over here watching the new Thor movie because <laughs> I love it so much. So... I, I don't disagree with the fact that there aren't a lot of original things and I still want them. And I still think that there's a place for them, mm -hmm. but the power of fandom is unlike any other. And now that Hollywood has realized that the fans can get what they want. Mm -hmm. um, and they, the rabid, the rabid consumers, and they mm -hmm. will bring their dollars. I mean, it, the buying power is incredible. And at the end of the day, if you have an audience that's already built in, they know that the fan base will be there. So I can't fault that. And as a fan, I'm happy that I'm getting adaptations of my favorite stuff. Mm -hmm. so I take a little bit of a different um, I fall on, on a different side than I think most people do, but only because it that's actually my own personal love as a fan. Right. Um, should creators come up with their own IP in terms of comics or novels or stuff like that? And I think by and large, the answer is no. For a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. I think if you, it's like no with a million caveats, right? You know, it's not, it's never a definitive no. Sure. But 
I worked in comic book publishing for a little while. So I'm going to use that as the example. We'll talk about novels in a minute because I do have, you know, even friends who have taken their scripts and turned them into novels and are now novelists. And that's great. And mm-hmm. like, you should do that. Um, when it comes to comic books in particular, there are three things that I tell clients. Um, and I usually explain this to clients at the company and not necessarily my clients mm-hmm. um, because I, because of the fact of my background in the business and my connections in comic book publishing, I get a lot of my colleagues who ask me to sit down with their clients and walk them through. Like they just say, I want to make a comic book and they mm-hmm. have no idea what that skills. And so they send me to go chat with them. But these are the things that I tell them. Number one, you don't know anything about how to make comics. Um, if you do, that's great. And I wonder why we're having this conversation and you should just go and use your own contacts. And I'm happy to be helpful. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that I don't want to be helpful. Um, Just because you've written on a TV show, just because you've, you know, you have script samples, just because you know how to write in a specific format does not mean that you understand how a comic book gets made. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that how to write a comic. It's a different format. It's a different style. It's, you know, one I usually say, and I don't think this is a hard and fast rule, but kind of what I've seen is that like one floppy issue of a comic of, you know, 22 to 26 pages, it's about like an act of a TV show Mm -hmm. in terms of now they put a lot of stuff in there. So I, that's not a hard and fast rule, but it's just to show that it's different. You have less time to say something in an issue of a comic. Now, if it's a full original graphic novel, OGN, you obviously have more space to play with. That's hundreds of pages. Um, So you don't know, like it's, it's like transitioning even from live action into animation. Like this is a very specific way of doing things. It's a very small community and you are an interloper. Mm -hmm. So do not come in thinking that you know what you're doing or that you're better than them. and I had to learn that the hard way in animation and in comics. And it's sort of a rule of cultural humidity, humility. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's not your space, it's their space. So let them tell you what to do. So number one, number two, you're going to put in prime rib work for ramen money. You know, you're going to be making $50 a page, you know, and that's not a lot of money and people, spend their entire careers mm-hmm. you know, working in comics. And, you know, if you're balking at these numbers, it's like, well, it's good enough for Chris Sabella, it's good enough for you. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously, like that's $50 on the low and it can be much higher than that elsewhere the longer you, the longer you work. But I think they see these numbers and they're just like, well, this isn't what I signed up for. And I was like, then you're not, then you don't actually want to make a comic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number three, it's the most important rule. If you are making a comic because you want to make it into a TV show or a movie, don't make it into a comic because you're just going to be wasting your own time and money and someone else's time and money on something that you don't actually really care about it being a comic. You have to do it for the love of the game mm-hmm. because of one and two. You truly have to want it to live and exist as a comic book and be okay with that and be okay with it going nowhere mm-hmm. because otherwise like it, just because you have a comic doesn't mean it's going to get made and and I represent some comic book creators and they're going to be very lucky if their stuff gets out ad- adaptations mm-hmm. 
So like get in line. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of novels, I'm, I'm less knowledgeable of that, but you want to like go through the process of writing a proposal and querying and all that kind of stuff, because you're basically at the, both of them, you're starting at the beginning again, like you've an agent or manager, like, guess what? You're gonna have to find another one. Right. um, It's a process. It's a process. And I don't think a lot of people understand that like being a screenwriter is not always the fast track to getting a book or a comic. Mm -hmm. And I think what you were mentioning in terms of being paid to write a comic book or create a comic book, uh, oftentimes people don't realize how, what you would mention, it's very insular. It's a very small community. You think Hollywood is small. The comic book industry is much smaller. Oh and my there's gosh. many fewer, fewer jobs. And so more likely, if you want to create your own comic book, no one's going to pay you to do it. You're going to have to pay an artist yes. to draw it for you. So you're paying the $50 a page to an artist to draw it for you. What do you know? $50 a page is for writing. It's much more for artists. Well, there you go. You're going to end up paying a lot of money. And don't forget, mm-hmm. you're not just paying. If you want to pay an artist, you're mm-hmm. paying them for pencils. Right. Colors. Are you going to hire a colorist? Are you going to hire a letterer? Are you going to hire a flatter? Like mm-hmm. what? Those are a bunch of things. Also, how are you going to publish it? Mm-hmm. Are you going to, are you going to put it online? Are you going to self-publish it? Are you going to put, are you going to Kickstarter it? Are you going to put it through Diamond or Luna? Like, do you know what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are uh, sometimes have come to me with like, well, I already hired an artist and now here's a completed comic book. Mm-hmm. And I go, fortunately, I can't do anything with this. Right. Because publishers don't want just like screen, like just like, you know, producers are like, well, I don't want a completed movie. Like mm-hmm. unless I'm a distributor. Um, they want to get in on the ground floor and develop those ideas with you, you know? And also I had, had a an editor in chief of no not an editor in chief a, a CEO of mm. a comic book publisher tell me Hillary I'm not in the business of idea rehab he doesn't want a busted pilot he wants something fresh and new and original and you know it's the same it's the same thing so you need to come in kind of understanding that like this isn't your space and your world and you are kind of starting from square one again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've had on a number of comic book writers in the past, comic book creators and such, and they have a difficult time getting work and they have credits on different various comic books. Uh, and so as someone coming from outside the space, again, it's going to be challenging. It's not an easier step to create a comic book just because it's 24 pages and it has pictures. It, exactly. It's not easier and it's incredibly hard and, you know, Everyone in everyone in comics is underpaid from the editors to the artists and the and the writers. And so, you know, I, I think people just think that it's like, oh, it's just so easy. Like I'll make I'll make right. a comic. And also comic book folks, because of the fact that a lot of Hollywood people come in mm-hmm. and whether sometimes the creators might feel like they weren't respected, or sometimes they feel like oh, you're just here to like take my stuff and ruin it or take it away from me or, you know, you don't actually have reverence to the material or whatever. You know, a lot of comic book folks, they're leery of Hollywood people. And, um, you know, there's a lot of like, this is the thing that I got paid no money to do and I care about it and it's my baby and like, what are you going to do with it? And 
they can sniff out when you're disingenuous. Mm-hmm. They know when you just want to make a TV show and you're just doing it because, oh, it's a back, you know, I'm going to use this comic as a back. Right. And they know they're not, they're, they're smart. <laughs> well, like you said, you're passionate about it, about, uh, you know, genre stuff about comics and things like that. And they are too. And they can tell when you're not. Like when you can't have a conversation about comic books at all, other than, oh, we can make it into a TV show. Or I saw the, I love the MCU. They know yeah. that you don't read comics, you know? You know and, and can't tell you, yeah. How many, can't tell you how many times somebody's like, oh, I'd really love to write on a DC book. And mm-hmm. I was like, get in line. Right. Like, I, I want to write a DC book. Like, right. You know? <laughs> right. And <laughs> like Kevin out. Smith, Kevin you don't Smith just loves pitch. comics. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Pitch to DC, you don't just pitch to Marvel. Like that's not how that's not how any of this works. Right. It's not. It's not like I just set up a meeting with an editor and you're like, "Here's my idea for Dazzler," and you're right. like, "It's not going to happen." Dazzler if, Marvel, but yeah. Right. But to your point, if you truly, truly love comics and you have a great comic idea, then by all means, pursue that. Absolutely. But, but it's not a back door per se. And I, I've heard a lot of writers say, "Well." I'll get an artist to draw it for me for free. We'll be partners. And then when it sells and makes a lot of money, yeah. we'll be 50, 50 partners or whatever. And just like someone coming to you as a writer, I have a great idea for script. I don't want to write it, but you write it for me and we'll split my idea 50, 50, yeah. right? It's like every artist loves comics, so they wouldn't be doing it. And they not, have their own ideas. Not only that, art, creating art, being an artist is incredibly physical and it's very tasking. They have surgeries on their hands because Hmm. of, you know, all of these things they have from writing and drawing and holding their hands in specific ways. Like it's incredibly physically exhausting for people to do art. So you need to understand that like when you're asking for free work, you know, you wouldn't pay a professional athlete for free, you know? So that's, that's how I feel. Now, if you have like a friend who's an artist and you want to do a passion project and you want to do it together, like by all means, you should do it. And many people do, many people do it on their own and they write and they draw Mm -hmm. together and they write and they draw just all themselves and they put it on Webtoon or, or whatever, what have you. And I think that's great because that's how a lot of people get started is in web comics. And I think web comics are absolutely incredible mm-hmm. and I love them. Uh, but you have to be willing to do that. Yeah. Uh, and everybody has to be willing to do that. But right. you need to pay, you need to pay people. Right. <laughs> pay people. I mean, yeah, the, the rent is too high. You right. gotta pay it. <laughs> Uh, but again, to your point is we're not telling anyone to not do it, no. but if your reasoning behind it is that you think it's a quick, easy backdoor in, it's not, that's all. It's a really expensive, long process to right. get in. And I think it is not an effective use of your time. If you are not, if that's what your goal is, because then mm-hmm. if that's the case, you should just go and write the script. Right, right. Um, I do have more questions on IP and representation, but we we do have a few here in the chat that I just want to throw out here. Um, Clint Williams says, Kenesaw, I lived in Powder Springs when I worked for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I don't know why that is, Clint. Clint, uh, Uh, Yeah, no, Powder Springs, you worked for the AJC. Nice. Great. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Kirk D'Amato says, growing up around Atlanta, was Dragon Con an influence on you? 
<laughs> um, I did not have, I didn't ever, I never went to Dragon Con. It was not a thing. I didn't mm. grow up in a household where we were a convention family. Mm -hmm. And I moved to LA when I was 18. So that convention life was never I went to the Atlanta like auto show like oh. that's what, <laughs> that's what I grew up doing mm -hmm. um and like playing video games and like E3 was in Atlanta for a while and I think mm. you know dad had always wanted to go but I didn't really get to experience a lot of those things because I was a kid in the cons like my dad was not into Dungeons and Dragons like I think you know and cosplay wasn't really a thing I was never on my radar right gotcha mm -hmm. Uh, let's see here. David Wales. Hey, David. I see story on your bookshelf. Can you talk about your relationship to different screenwriting theories? Uh, do you prefer the vocabulary of one more than others? I don't know um, because I, I don't necessarily have theories on screenwriting. Mm -hmm. I have theories on notes and structure and they and it's an amalgamation of a mm -hmm. lot of different things and so i couldn't tell you like oh yes this thing that i believe in comes from the key right um versus save the cat or versus, versus whatever save the cat or right. because, and and so my answer to that is you should read all of them and take what mm. works and leave what doesn't Good. um you know that's a bit of a non-answer and i wish i had a better one but uh I think some people and are just like, just give me the answer. And I'm just like, it's everything. It's right. You have to take what works. Yeah. I mean, writing is very individual, right? Mm -hmm. What worked for someone may not work for someone else and that kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, um, let's see here. Curtis Haptonstall. Uh, I didn't write my first screenplay until I was 68 and will turn 70 soon. 70 isn't old either. Thank you for your perspective. Well, congratulations, Curtis. I think that's fantastic writing at that age. I don't remember the name of the writer but the writer i think of nebraska this the film indie film nebraska i think he was in his 60s when he had sold his uh first although he may have been writing novels before that i don't know but no that's fantastic um simba dabinga here is uh is there a market for ya sci-fi fantasy that is not based on existing ip that's a good question i'm often told my script would be too risky because it would cost too much money for an unknown project correct period end of yeah. story um yeah way too way too first of all let's break it down mm -hmm. ya um if you're talking about a feature yeah there's 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 some space in ya for that um if you're talking about television ya is is very difficult to do um there's and and like defining what YA is, is mm -hmm. actually very difficult in, in my opinion, because I think every network defines YA as something different. Right. And the ages switch and change. And there, I think a lot of places that consider things YA actually skew way too old for what I believe to be YA. Uh, so what's YA? Um, and, and a lot of places like are trying to figure that out right now. Mm -hmm. And so they're very averse to buying it or they say they want to buy it, but then they don't. And you're like, you say you want this. I don't think you know what that means. You keep using that word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so sci-fi fantasy, all you're going to see is dollar signs. Um, unless you're putting the word grounded before it, which can lessen the, um, 
can lessen the price, but doesn't necessarily take a lot of those costs away. Mm-hmm. Uh, very difficult. Um, and in, by the way, YA aside, any sci-fi fantasy thing, adult is incredibly hard to make without any IP because for the reasons I mentioned earlier, it needs a fan base. Mm-hmm. It needs a fan base because if you're going to be spending, if I'm saying like, I'm going to spend $100 million on a movie on an idea that like, I have no idea if this could perform in the marketplace. Like, am I going to go with the idea that I don't know? Mm-hmm. Or am I going to get an idea about a, from a rabid fan base that's been dying for an adaptation of the book? Right. It has no, it's not that one is better than the other. It's just at the end of the day, like what, pe- what do people want to see? What are people asking for? And if there's a bunch of low hanging fruit of like available IP that has a large fan base and the fans really want to see it, let's give it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I hate to give that answer because I don't want to be defeatist, um, but it is a it is a it's a fact right now in the business, um, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to actually see it. It's going to be even more crunched uh, over the next few years. What about a writer like that? Let's say you had read a writer like that, that had YA sci-fi fantasy stuff. That was really great because you signed them, right? Mm-hmm. How about using those as writing samples? Because there is so much yeah. YA, you know, sending it to Freeform, to C- CW, because a lot of stuff nowadays anyway is not necessarily going to sell and make you a ton of money and become big things, but will land you a job, an OWA or on staff somewhere, right? Um, well, let's just talk about the fact that you use Freeform and CW interchangeably because they're not. No, sure, sure, sure. But Well, no, but like, I think a lot of people say YA and they think, right. oh, it's Freeform and CW. And having worked at Freeform, I can tell you Freeform's not YA. Um, okay. It's new adult. New, which is okay. Lots of people in publishing are be very mad at me and I apologize people. No, no, no. Please d- distinguish them, yes. And it is true. Mm-hmm. And even before, I don't think necessarily with, we didn't really use that term a lot, but because I was familiar with it, I used it when I was there. Mm-hmm. It's post-graduation of college. Gotcha. YA is like teen. Mm-hmm. In my, these are my definitions. People are going to have different definitions. So don't like quote me on this. But to me, like, yes, I could send somebody that I would send to the CW to free form and vice versa. I mm-hmm. could do that. They're in a larger umbrella that is kind of similar or awesomeness or something like that. Mm-hmm. But one of them is going to skew so much younger than the other. Gotcha. One of them is going to be way soapier than the other. And one of them is going to focus on different life events than the other. So if somebody... I haven't been signing a lot of people who write YA mm-hmm. for this very reason because the amount of people that I can submit them to is so incredibly small. Gotcha. But let's say that I did. Yes, in theory, absolutely could use it as a sample. Would I use it as a sample? It really depends mm-hmm. um, because sometimes executives may read something that's so huge and fantastical and has all this world building that they they get lost in the world building and really just want to read your voice and character work. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, so it, as long as it has that, yeah, could use it as a sample totally. Mm-hmm. Never throw anything out or, <laughs> you know, repurpose it. Do we want to do another draft? Is there something in the script that you really mm. like 
did that maybe we can pull out and do like, you know, should we maybe reimagine it or rework right. it a little bit? You know, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Quentin S. How many clients do you handle? How many could you take on? And how do you find new clients? Three questions in one. Um, how many clients do I have? How many clients can I handle? I am hesitant to answer that question because I have a different amount of clients than an average manager might have. And the reason is because I work in animation mm. most of the time, which mean, and there are not a lot of places that handle animation writers, directors, and board artists. So my, the amount of like, if you ask somebody who is even some of my friends who are more established managers who've been doing it longer than I have, they still have less clients than I do mm -hmm. because the work that I do in animation is a lot more closer to agency work of like mm -hmm. getting people jobs. I do manage and develop their careers, but because Gotham is the number one representative of folks in animation, we take on the majority of the mm -hmm. folks in animation. So I don't really, and also like, it's hard to tell each day how many clients I do have because I work in all departments and I help out with a lot of different people, but they're not necessarily like on my client list. Mm -hmm. um, how many could I take on? Great question and something even I'm trying to figure out the answer to right now. Um, you know, I, I feel like I only have space for a few more at the moment, but who knows? Mm -hmm. Like the, it changes based on whether or not your clients are working. Mm -hmm. As soon as somebody gets that you've been spending a lot of time on gets a job, you have all this time that's kind of freed up a little bit so you can focus on more people, which means, so once I get people so established, then it's like, okay, now I can take on some more folks. Right. Establish some more, take on some more. Establish right. some more, take on some more. Then you get to be in the incoming call business instead of the outgoing call business. Oh, boy, don't you sure hope so, right? <laughs> um, so, Yeah. And then how do I find clients? Mm. Great question. Um, well, I don't take unsolicited submissions, like first and foremost. So that sort of takes away a lot of the cold emails that I get. Um, mostly referrals, but um, I do. And then sometimes I get pulled on to like somebody will, like another manager will, say, hey, Hillary, somebody sent me this client, uh, potential client. I think they might be a good fit for you. Do you want to mm -hmm. come in a team with me? So that is actually how I mostly get my clients nowadays is getting pulled on to like, oh, so-and-so, I think, you know, Hillary, we would be good for this person. Mm -hmm. Let's see if maybe you're a good fit, bring you on. Um, but I will basically go through what are the shows that I love? Um, especially if they're animated shows, because it's easier to find many people in animation don't have reps, hmm. uh, for live action. It's a little bit, I look for clients a little bit differently, but let's, we'll talk about animation first. Uh, it was, I'll just go through each of the shows that I like. And like, I want clients who do that kind of thing. Uh, and I will just read the credits and I will go through every writer and I will go through every director and I'll go through every board artist and I will see, are they working? Are they repped? What other kinds of stuff do they do? And if they do that stuff that's kind of in the same sphere, mm -hmm. I will reach out to them and say, hey, like, do you want to have this conversation? 
would love to meet, would love to read, or would love to look at your reel or something like that. In terms of the live action clients, um, yeah, it's a lot of, you know, my brand is strong. And so everybody knows like, oh, if they write sci-fi or they write genre or they want to, you know, do a Marvel thing, like call Hillary. So right. it's not that hard. In that way, I am very much an incoming call business. Right. So for somebody who falls into the category of what you were describing, meaning work in animation somewhere along the lines or for uh, in some capacity on a live action show that's genre sci-fi that has and you're talking about without a referral but like an incoming call business meaning called is that something that that writers who are looking for reps but are, again who have that sort of background in something uh is, is that something that you are open to like could they email me and, yeah yeah and yeah no, I still can't take unsolicited submissions, but here's what I will say. Mm -hmm. Here are the couple things that you can do. Put your reps on your social media and your website. You do not want to have to search mm. to figure out whether or not you're already repped. Gotcha. And if you're looking for reps, say so. That's smart, actually. I hadn't thought about that. Um because I, I'm very, like, for me, I'm very active on Twitter, obviously, and I am constantly following accounts of, like, people that I think I want to track. Maybe they could be a potential client. Mm -hmm. And I want to know if, if you want to create a TV show, if that, that's your ultimate goal, or if you feel like I'm a working writer, but I don't have an advocate, like, mm -hmm. I feel like this could be very interesting. I want to know. Tweet about it. Put it on your bio. Do all these things. But also talk to your colleagues, mm -hmm. talk to your colleagues, especially if you're in animation, because of the fact that being at Gotham, we represent a bunch of people in animation. You're very hard pressed to find somebody who's not repped here. So ask your colleagues who's repped at Gotham and have them make a ref, like a referral for you. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, Hillary, I work with Marissa. Marissa is amazing. Would you, you know, here's her stuff. Would you like to read her? And I'd be like, yes, totally. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or, hey, you know, I'm not sure that's the right fit, but maybe somebody else here would be a better fit. Um, so ask around mm -hmm. um, in animation in particular. And you would mention, since we're on the social media uh, avenue here, what do you, when you're looking for tracking someone on social media, let's say, what sort of things do you see in social media on someone's Twitter or Facebook or whatever that is a turnoff? Like what should writers be aware of? I, I should not put this on my Twitter or Facebook or whatever at risk of, obviously everyone's different. There's, there's subjectiveness to it, certainly, but like certain things you see that were like, okay, that person is not professional. That person would not whatever it stands out as a red flag let's pass yeah. on them and move on um in anything that's sexist hmm. or misogynistic or racist or transphobic or queerphobic like any of that stuff anything that veers into that territory mm -hmm. um anything for me anything that's like shits on the work of other people mm, that's a good point um, you know, there was somebody who I'd been tracking who tweeted about how they were upset that 
you know, a certain show was getting made from a pretty, I think, unproblematic creator. So it's not like mm. if you're tweeting about somebody who's like, they're, you know, they're a jerk and like people shouldn't be working with them. Like right. I fall out folks. Mm. But um, if, if you're just mad that something's getting made, I, I can't like, all right, like go, go put your energy elsewhere. Mm. Um, because that to me could signal like that you're never going to be happy with what you have. Sure. Um, and I'm not saying to say like, you should just be so grateful, like blah, blah, blah. What I'm saying is, is like, if you get a no to me, that signals that the person doesn't know how to take a no. Mm. Um, and could be, get, get very frustrated very quickly about like, well, why are they making this show and not my show? And mm-hmm. like, million reasons why your show is not getting made i don't and sometimes we don't always know why and it's not because it's bad it could be just the wrong time um or the wrong person hasn't you know the right person hasn't seen it yet so that can be really you know questionable um i think if you're currently yeah i think i think trash talking can be really um, especially if you're, unless you're going through something that is incredibly like a harsh working condition that is a problem and like somebody is a harasser or, you know, that kind of stuff. And you're calling out very bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Do not call out the people who are working on the show that you are currently working on. Like I've had, I've seen that happen at a convention mm-hmm. once. It's like, you're still working on that show. Like, um, so it can, it, but I say this all with like, I th- say that all of this very trepidatiously because social media is both professional and personal mm-hmm. and, you know, it will be up to you to decide how you, you're going to be perceived. And if you are not concerned about your, the, that perception of that thing that you're mm-hmm. saying, I get it. I get it. You know, I, there are definitely things that I feel like I've tweeted that, that may have turned off some people. So, and I did it anyway, because I felt like something needed to be said about Mm -hmm. Y or Z. So, you know, all I'm saying is be aware of your audience and, and you never know who's going to see it. And, um, just know that there are other human beings out there on the other side of the internet. Right. And I've heard multiple from multiple lit reps that trashing other people's work is just a bad sign because you're making it harder for your rep if you ever want to get a job working for that other individual or someone who knows that individual. Potentially, it's just not a good look, you know, especially if it's targeted at a single individual. Sure. You know, it's like, you know, such and such director, why would you blah, blah, blah. And you're right. like, oh, going to work with them again. Right. We're never going to work with them at all. And you know what? Maybe you don't want to. And that's why you don't care. You know, <laughs> like I get it. But I think but, that's yeah. also short-sighted unless you actually know that person or know that person to be a raging a-hole. And you def- otherwise you just didn't like something and or you're jealous that you wanted to make that and they did before you or whatever. And they could be a, a, cool, a great person and you may have had a great opportunity to work with them. That's gone. I, potentially. I agree. You know, I've, I completely agree with that sentiment. You know, I think if it's one thing, there's a difference between a critique Mm-hmm. and trashing 
uh, there are many things that I have critiqued that I feel very movies that I feel like have let me down, Mm -hmm. you know, for a million different reasons. And I have written tweets about here's why, or here's why I have a concern about something, or here's why I was saddened by this. And that is completely different than just being like, no one wants this. And like, why does it exist? And all of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I don't know. I, I could, I could completely forget that and throw that out the window tomorrow. I don't, you know, you just be careful when you use when you tweet rate, when you rage tweet, be careful right. when you rage tweet. Right. Right. Hold, hold it and think about it before you tweet it. Um, think about it. If you don't have somebody, if you, if you can't filter yourself, get yourself a friend like I do, who I say, can I please tweet this? And they go, no, you can't. That's, that's really mean. I'm like, okay, fine. So. Uh, let's see here. Cure Legacy. Love Luna in the background wearing a Sailor Moon shirt right now. Well, that's cool. Nice. Uh, um, Simba says her energy is amazing and a breath of fresh air. I agree. Uh, Rodney92, what is your favorite film that you would represent if it came across your desk? Well, you don't represent films per se, but like, I guess, filmmaker for your favorite film. Like, who would you, what would you pick? Well, I'm trying to think about how I want to answer the question of, do I want to represent the filmmaker or do I want to represent the screenwriter? Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, or both if it's the same person. But yeah. It's so hard because I don't have like a favorite filmmaker mm-hmm. and I don't really like, I think auteur theory is, is dead. And, you know, I guess like Wes Anderson, maybe. Um, but I feel like that's so such a narrow window mm. into the kinds of movies that I like. Um, I don't know how to answer that question because I don't know which part of it I'd want to answer. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Uh, well, if you think about it, you can break in yeah. anytime. Uh, right. Let's see here. Simba again, since sci-fi fantasy costs so much, if you read a great sci-fi feature script, but it would cost too much to make live action, would you consider pitching it as an animation project? Ah, Yes, that old question. Um, it depends um, on a lot of different factors. First and foremost, is it something that feels like it's inherently animation? Mm. Animation executives can tell when you wrote something for live action, and you just said, well, make it animated. I think a lot of people misunderstand the capabilities of animation and they just think that, oh, we can, we can do anything because it's animation. And that is not the case. Um, animation has to be budgeted. Animation has, to, you can't just have like a character like do like, you know, six costume changes and mm-hmm. you can't have like 10 fight scenes because it's really expensive and you can't have like 20 ships, you know, mm-hmm. it's all of those things have to be budgeted for. So what number one is, is there a version of this that's animated? That's, that's the question. Because if there isn't, then no. Mm. But if there is, okay, let's go down that path. Um, ask yourself, why is it animated? Why does it have to be animated? And if your answer is, well, because I couldn't get it done live action, 
it's the same thing with comics. Mm -hmm. Like you don't really have respect for the medium. You have to think about why it's animated and you have to write it inherently in the script. Mm. You have to be very clear as to why it's animated. It's because there's something that specifically animation can do for this that you're not going to get in live action. Now, I say this with a caveat because that's how the industry is currently. Mm. There are many shows and I do think and I hope that we get to the point in animation where we don't need to ask ourselves that question of why is the show animated? Because as somebody who loves like slice of life anime, I can absolutely be live action. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that I don't want people coming in the comments being like, that's not true. I know that's not true. But right now mm -hmm. in American animation, that's the question. Why is this animated? So if it is animated, okay, what are the places that can afford that crazy sci-fi fantasy thing that you're trying to do? Mm -hmm. And you also need to understand that, you know, if you're doing it as, because the question was about a feature, I highly doubt you're going to get it set up as an animated feature. Mm -hmm. um, there are, you may, that hasn't been done since heavy metal, um, which I love. So are there places that are doing, anim you know, already animated features? There are a couple people trying to see if maybe that's like a thing, but it's still very early days. You're about two weeks early to the party. Hmm. Um, so now we have to think about a show. Okay, well, you wrote it as a feature. Now we have to decide, is there a show version of this too? So it's two questions. Is it animated and is it a TV show? Um, because executives also know when they've read something that feels more like a feature, than a TV show. There's mm -hmm. that. You also also have to understand that the episode length is different because Game of Thrones normally in a live action show would be an hour. In animation, it would be half an hour. Gotcha. Exception of the only show on the air currently that is an hour that is animated and is an adult show and is genre is Invincible, and it is very expensive. Mm -hmm. Um. Mostly, so when you're dealing with animation, usually it's 11s and 22s. So right. probably going to be a half hour adult animated show. And so, and okay, what what companies are willing to pay that kind of budget? It's mm -hmm. still an expensive budget. Uh, so the, the question is, would I, as long as we get those questions answered and mm -hmm. they make sense, then yes. Right. But again, going back to the whole comic book thing, it's not necessarily an easier backdoor to getting it made, per se. Um, let's see here. Blue Rabbit, would you be open to receiving submissions from writers who directed a feature? If so, what genre are you interested in the most? Uh, well, I don't take unsolicited submissions, number one. Uh, if there, if somebody was pitching me a potential client that had never written before, but had directed a feature before, mm -hmm. that would depend on, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to the idea. I think it just all comes out to the work mm -hmm. is the work good. And I do represent people who are writer directors, um, who like, I have one client who her, her directing background is, is much stronger than her writing background, mm -hmm. but I think she's she just hasn't had as much work in the writing space, but she has worked. Um, it's just because she spent her background started in directing and then she shifted over into writing and now she does both. Right. So yeah, 
it's definitely I focus on my roster like that. Sure. Right. And also, I think that when you're talking about someone who directed a feature, that could mean a million different things that could be right. It could be a a two million dollar indie that got some distribution from, you know, Lionsgate. It could be some self-directed thing on an iPhone that was released to a couple of small independent film festivals in the middle of nowhere, or it could be a huge major feature. But obviously, if it's the bigger it is, the more likely you are to be able to call someone to recommend you get a referral to Hillary. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I have to like both. I have to like the directing and the writing. Oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, what if they didn't write the, the feature that but if, if you like the feature, but they didn't write it, but they had a spec or, you know, some yeah, sort yeah. of. What I mean is, is if gotcha. they direct, and that's how I have one of my clients, I send out her directing sample, which she didn't write. Mm-hmm. And I send out a writing sample. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, it does. Totally. Right. And two, two things. One, for those who are, are not familiar or not as familiar, who are newer to the industry, can you explain to them why refer? Because we always hear this. Well, if I knew a bunch of people, then I wouldn't, you know, need an agent or whatever. Why are referrals so important for newer writers to get the attention uh, from a rep such as yourself? Yeah. Um. Well, there's a million sure. answers to that question. Number one, the most important one is legal protection. Mm-hmm. Um. I can't. number one, I legally cannot, that's a company policy. Um, And even if I didn't work at a company, I'd probably still have that policy because it protects you from having somebody claim that they stole your idea. Mm -hmm. So number one, there's that. Number two is I don't know you. Mm -hmm. I don't know you. And Everybody, if every, if I read everything that everyone sent me that come into my inbox, I would get fired because I would never get anyone a job mm-hmm. uh, because I would be reading all the time and only reading. And so I have no idea if the script on the other side, you know, the, the human who wrote the script on the other side of the computer is a good writer. And so I, who's, who, I, I have to have a filter. Mm-hmm. I have to have some sort of filter that tells me that this person is worth vouching for. And I think if, you know, I'm at a point in my career where, rewind, when you're starting out as young, as an assistant, you know, exact agent, whoever, you know, you have a lot more time to go and, you know, meet fresher, younger writers and you kind of, grow up with them and you can, you know, take on what are called development clients. Mm -hmm. But as you get further into your career, bandwidth is so stretched that you really have to think about how you're using your time. So if I'm taking on a client, the clients who take up the most amount of work in your day are the clients that do not work Mm -hmm. and the clients, and I, I mean, it sounds way harsher than I meant it. The clients who currently aren't working, um, and the, or don't have a job at the moment, and the clients who are newer in their career that need, you know, development, they need to work on their scripts, you have to send them on more meetings, you have to introduce them to more people. So when I'm reading somebody, I have to think about 
how much time can I reasonably devote to them that is fair to them and fair to me? Mm-hmm. So why I need that, that extra person, that vote of confidence is because I need somebody to say, or I'd like somebody to say, worth your time. This person's worth your time. Right. I can tr- trust me worth your energy because I don't know if I don't have another person vouching for them and mm-hmm. it can be a crapshoot. And right. by the way, it's still a crapshoot, even with the referral. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to play the lottery, I better do it with somebody who has a little bit of clout telling mm-hmm. me play the lottery. Right. Um, that I'm saying that acknowledging that that thought process is inherently flawed because of the fact that it creates another barrier to entry for those folks who are marginalized and don't have the resources. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what I think is that I'm, I'm so glad that there are organizations like Blacklist and Coverfly and Roadmap Writers who are doing the work to be those advocates and those thumbs up for folks that, that need it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that they solve all the problems, but I do think it's a step in the right direction. Sure. And uh, a number of lit reps have come on and, and do look at blacklist if they score highly or if they get the weekly newsletter or whatever and anything catches their eye. But I know also that referrals can come from all different places. And yes. some reps will only take a referral from someone that they know or are familiar with, but others are open to if, for example, uh, a screenwriting professor at USC emails you and said, I have a great student or somebody that you have no connection with, but is established in some other in, in the field. Is that oh, something totally. that you're open to? Um, some it depends. Sure. Um, some, you know, if it's like. If there was an executive that. Was like, hey, I'm so sorry. And at a reputable company. Oh, sure, like, sure, sure. Hey, you don't know me, but I heard through the grapevine that like, you're the person who handles this stuff, right? Um, which does happen sometimes. I bet. Yeah. Um, it was like, yeah, that like, you're the nerd girl. Like I heard you're the nerd girl. Right. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Thanks. Um, like, I think this might be the right person. Or I was talking to a colleague of mm-hmm. yours who was saying this might be for you like very open to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it depends professors sometimes, I mean, it, uh, that, um, you know, if it's, if it's my alma mater, like mm-hmm. I'm more open. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't count it out. Fair enough. Um, but they still need to be open to the fact that like, I may, depending, I may mm-hmm. not be able to respond to the email. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see here. Um, Himson Chan says, if we have trailers to produced work or short films under five to 10 minutes available, would it be okay to include links to them in a query? Although, you know, you would talk about yourself personally, but just in general, is that something that. 
Uh, yeah, I think if you are sending to somebody who's able to accept a query, um, a cold query, then I think you should include a link to a trailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kier Legacy, how was your time at Crunchyroll? Do you think there could be a market for Western-made anime? There is a market for Western-made anime because it already exists. Um, <laughs> I... I love talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so Western anime who Will Fang at Titmouse, I want to give him full credit for giving me this vernacular of, he calls it cowboy anime. Mm. Uh, and I love that. Uh, I used to call it like mid Pacific or pan Pacific animation. Um, that did not catch on at Crunchyroll and it looked at me, but fine. Um, or anime influenced Western mm-hmm. anime, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yes, I do think there is a market. I believe it still exists, and I think that we're not doing enough of it. Uh, and if there are any exec- executives or companies or studios that want to know why I feel that way, more than welcome to call me, and I will walk you through <laughs> that process. Um, The reason being uh, is a multitude of factors. Um, Number one, animation is not just for children. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we know that because of anime. And we know that because of even certain things here in the States that have been for adults uh, that that do perform. Uh, You know, obviously we're used to it being in the comedy space, but because the eldest millennials are in their 40s. Mm-hmm. They grew up on anime and Toonami and all of that kind of stuff. They still love it, which is why they continue to subscribe to anime subscriptions and watch it there mm-hmm. and can't find it elsewhere. So give the people what they want is what I say. Uh, and I do think that there is an anime for everyone. Uh, And I have done this time and time again with different executives who are like, where do I start with anime? And I'm like, okay, well, what do you like now? I will find you an anime that's like that. Mm -hmm. And so somewhere in between cableized storytelling and this really cool way that anime can tell stories is what we were trying to do at the time at Crunchyroll. Their mandate has changed since then. But there are other places who are trying to do that. And I think we'll see more of it. We were just very, very early to the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just praying and hoping that that we see more of it. Because those are the kind of writers that I have been trying to target in terms of representation. As right. people write those types of shows. And if anyone here is a fan of anime or manga, uh, just as a plug uh in a few weeks we have steven maeda who is the co-showrunner for new netflix's new series one piece based on the manga so uh yeah in a few weeks we've got steven maeda from uh his shows yeah one piece from the manga it's coming out in, uh, from netflix i don't know when it's coming out though but anyway just a quick plug so let's see here kirk damato i did not expect heavy metal to get a shout out uh this early in the day but i am here for <laughs> i have yeah i have a whole shelf in my collection that's just devoted to having that. Nice. So, yeah. Um, David Wales, just changed my Twitter profile to reflect that I'm seeking representation. Thank you so much for the suggestion. 
It's awesome. Uh, Hilary Van Hoos, do you represent anyone in preschool animation? And if so, do you recommend different career development tactics for someone in that space who's trying to sh uh, shift to age six to 11 shows? Oh, great, great question. Um, the answer is yes, I do have folks in pre-K. I'm mm -hmm. not focused on them. I, I have, I'm very targeted when I sign folks in pre-K um, because it is a completely different world than six to 11 and sometimes even bridge. Um, and if you want to, sorry, the question was like, how do you transition from pre-K into is it six to 11, right? It was, well, do you recommend different career development tactics for someone <laughs> in the preschool animation, pre-K, and someone who's trying to shift to six to 11? Shift to six to 11. Shift yeah. to six to 11. Yeah, um, I recommend targeting bridge shows first mm. and then using bridge to transition into six to 11. Mm -hmm. um, for those of you who don't familiar, are not familiar with, those terms and what we're talking about. There are four animation demos. Um, there's pre-K, obviously mm -hmm. up until about five. There's six to 11, very self-explanatory. Although those numbers, that's the default term, but those ages can range. You know, mm -hmm. some people go, you know, up to 12, some even up to 14 at a couple of places. And then there's adult and somewhere between pre-K and six to 11 is bridge some four to seven, some five to eight, mm. really depends. Um, but that, that bridge transitions kids from pre-K into six to 11. Pre-K is very, you know, curriculum driven, very, you know, social and emotional education. Um, you know, the very basics of what those young, young children need to know. And when you get into bridge, you're starting to move away from that sort of learning aspect and getting them ready for six to 11, which is very either comedy or action usually. Mm -hmm. um, so I would start to target bridge so that you can shift because pre in the way that many animation writers kind of get stuck in animation, there's even the smaller division of pre-K writers who kind of get stuck in pre-K. Um, so make sure that you have make sure that you have a six to 11 sample that is absolutely just killer, like, and targeted towards the type of shows that you want to do. Try to focus your work on transitioning into bridge, say that you want to transition into six to 11, but that you're open to bridge. So maybe have more of a bridge sample too. And whatever executives you're interacting with at the, in the pre-K space, if they have a division that does six to 11, ask them if, you know, or ask your friends who are writers who work in six to 11, like, you know, can you send my stuff to this executive who handles that division? Could you introduce me? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's, it's a lift and yeah, people get pigeonholed. Right. Um, and it's with a lot of things like in the business, there's a lot of different spe specific categories of, and everyone's looking for an expert in that specific category or genre or medium or whatever it is, a specialist, right? And not just, oh, I want to write animation. Well, you know, there's sure. there's a wide range of specific yeah. category. Somebody emailed me yesterday being like, hey, can I introduce you to like a kids and family writer? And I was like, well, what, what kind of kids and family writer? <laughs> there's, there's like 
six different versions of that answer. Right, right. <laughs> um, Blue Rabbit asks, what advice would you recommend to writers who live in the U.S. but are established in their home non-English speaking countries? Uh, my action movie got theatrical distribution in eight countries and got picked up by Netflix recently. Sorry, they're based in the U.S., but their performance is... I guess they're established in a non-English speaking country elsewhere in the world. I guess they have credits from oh. there, but they're trying... They live in the U.S. now, and I guess they're trying to establish themselves here. Um, it's a very hard question because I've never done it. Hmm. Um, so I can only take my best guess, which is, number one, I would want to know whether or not you have some sort of representation in that home country mm -hmm. um, because that they can sort of help facilitate that sure. uh, conversation. Um, I would start, oh my gosh, I'm really kind of taking stabs at the dark here. I'm sure that somebody else on your show might have a better answer for this who've been, who's been on the show. But if your stuff is performing elsewhere, like see if you can, you know, get it into festivals here. Mm -hmm. So that what you need to do is have somebody in the US have eyes on it here. Mm -hmm. um, so is that getting some sort of like license to have it be here play if it's like a show like is there a license to have it play here in the states is like a foreign language show mm -hmm. if it's a feature like are you eligible to submit it for festivals here in a foreign language i'm assuming it's a foreign language but i could be wrong mm -hmm. but uh you know foreign language category and so it's it's just getting eyeballs on it here um that is unfortunately the best of, to my knowledge, the best advice I could give. So I don't know if I'm the right person to answer your question. I'm so sorry. Well, I mean, just talking about referrals again, if you got an email from a rep from another country yeah. saying, I've got a client who wants to work in the US and this is blah, 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 blah. They've had a film distributed in our country. They did really well. And it's now on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you would or someone at Gotham, maybe if they're not yeah. sci-fi fantasy, but you know, is that something yeah. that you think that is a legit referral? And I have clients who write comedy as well and drama, mm -hmm. but um, I'm open to having that conversation. I think it depends, like if it's on Netflix, like, okay, how is it performing on Netflix? Mm. Is it getting traction? Do they speak English? Um, what does they want to do? Do they want to be a writer or director? A little easier to, if they, they're a writer, they're going to have to speak English. If they're mm -hmm. a director, it's a little bit, you can play with that a little bit. Um, and you, you know, can have interpreters, things like that. I'm not saying you can't interpret, but the scripts usually have to be in English. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not opposed to it. It just has to be some, I have to overly love the material. Mm -hmm. I have to believe in it like it has to be one of the best things I've ever seen um, because I'm going to need that passion when I call executives to convince them it's worth their time. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. Not something I'm going to, somebody I'm going to take on or it's like, it's good. Right. I don't know if I can do that lift. Mm -hmm. um, that's the question that you have to ask yourself is like, what work am I going to have to do to get over the hump to have an executive say yes to this person? 
yes to this person. And if I feel like I'm not the right person who can do that lift, it's going to be a no. And sometimes, and that's what I want people to know is like, sometimes a no doesn't mean I don't like it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. a no is just like, I don't have the capability to do what it is you're asking me to do. Right. Right. And if it's, does it make a difference if they come from a non-English speaking, speaking country and their material and their success has been in that versus somebody who comes from Canada or the UK or Australia or South Africa, where their material at least is easily consumable by executives, you know, not having to read subtitles. You know, I know some people love foreign films. A lot of people love foreign films, but sometimes executives, you know, there's an element there of how can I, how quickly can I get through this stuff or whatever? And, and yeah, I need to be like, at, here's what I tell people. Like mm-hmm. I watch anime dubs, not because I don't care about subtitles, mm-hmm. but because I need to be able to fold my laundry or I need to be able to right. cook dinner. I don't have enough hours in the day mm-hmm. to be able to sit down and, and, and do this. I need to be able to look away and I don't want to miss something. Um, right. You know, that isn't, I go see foreign films with subtitles all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, if they are UK, South Africa, Australia, all that kind of stuff, that is also, that's incredibly helpful for a lot of reasons. Mm. EU and a UK passport are, and a Canadian passport are very helpful. Oh, good to know get work in a lot of places that Americans may not be able to because of tax credits and things like that. And especially if they're, you know, bi-coastal or, you know, they live across the pond, they split their time, especially if they're a director, mm-hmm. it can be helpful to have that passport because it means that they have the ability to, to shoot in other locales, especially like one piece you mentioned that was shot in South Africa. That's third being um, shot. Yeah. Currently. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it can be very helpful to, to have that kind of stuff now, especially for directors, mm-hmm. writers, you know, I would still want them to like be based here, but if they are from another country, it having, having that perspective can be helpful and having that passport, especially more powerful passports can be helpful. Right. And I guess Blue Rabbit added, it was number one on Netflix, but I don't, I, maybe you can clarify what, what country? Because it's not all unified, right? If it's number one on Netflix in China versus number one in, I don't know, Cambodia or something, that's a huge difference, right? In I terms don't of know people. in what category you're talking about. Oh, and that's like, true. You know, you know, there's a million different, we could use a, a case study, every case study, you know, we could go through every individual case all day. Um, but I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer the question. And how do you quantify that? I mean, let's say for your clients, if they have something on Netflix, how do you quantify? Because I, I was under the impression, at least in the past, that Netflix doesn't necessarily release their numbers. So how does how do clients find out? Oh, it did really well. Yeah, you know, they do have. My understanding is that after a certain amount of days, they hmm. have a conversation with the creators about okay. how the show is performing. Gotcha. But I don't necessarily have access to the data that they were shown or whether or not they were actually shown any data. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my understanding about how the Netflix process works. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and if it's an American language, like done here in Netflix, mm-hmm. uh, done here for Netflix, it's a little bit different mm. uh, because it's like, you did a show for Netflix. Whether or not people are watching, people are going to know, people have that kind of like, oh, yeah, I heard about that show. Right, right. 
Um, but if it's if it's an if it's a Netflix original that they made here and they developed, mm-hmm. not an original that is exclusive to the territory, which mm-hmm. they will do, um, it's a little easier. Yeah. Uh, and they said it was net, number one on Netflix in Turkey, which is actually a you know pretty respectable market at least. Um, but there's also like getting picked up by Netflix. That could mean a lot of different things because they have so much content. It could be some small low budget indie that they picked up for almost nothing, or it could be you know some big budget film that they developed in house and you know has Chris uh, Chris Evans in it or something, right? Um, very you know clear about what mm-hmm. you mean when you say it right right um now let's see here quentin s if someone has published a novel and sends that around for representation is that considered an unsolicited manuscript if someone has written a novel and it, was it says they for- published a novel i don't I, i'm assuming they that means self-published and they're looking for a publishing agent uh, and sends out of representation, is that considered an unsolicited manuscript? Well, I guess, Quentin, we'd have to ask, are you sending it out? Are you looking for representation for your novel? Although if you self-published it, I'm assuming not. So, because well, the publishing world works a little bit different than... Yeah, so if you're looking for a publishing agent, you're looking mm-hmm. for, hey, not necessarily the book, I think maybe Quentin might be asking, like, as a, as a novelist, mm-hmm. like, as an author, right. if you're looking for representation as an author to get more books published there is a query process and they do accept that in a different way and I won't speak to it because I don't know the ins and outs but Mm -hmm. I know many publishing agents who do take queries and querying is part of the process of being an author Mm -hmm. but if you're sending out your manuscript that is published for film and tv representation no it's the same answer it's still unsolicited are you sending it not having known the person prior? It's unsolicited. Right. So I guess they're looking for representation for TV and film, but using a novel as opposed to a script in case that is not considered unsolicited? No. Still unsolicited. Everything. It's not about what you're sending. It's Mm. the fact, it's the email that's unsolicited. Right, right. Uh, And also you wouldn't want somebody to rep you for film and TV without reading your scripts. Sure. So, That's a yeah. good point. And uh, while you're in a position now where most of your uh, newer clients for consideration come from referrals one way or another, uh, or you're tracking them because of work they've done in specific industries on shows you like, whatever. But uh, I'm sure you're not, you know, uh, you, you remember the days when uh, you were probably more starting out looking for clients. What yes. are some of the places you may, other than, again, just referrals, because obviously referrals are, is, is, is the home run, well, I shouldn't say home run, is, is the, the, uh, the way a majority of, of uh, mm-hmm. filmmakers, writers get representation. Um, what avenues did you use to look for clients was it screenplay competitions was it queries uh cold queries um so for context mm -hmm. in my um career Mm -hmm. i worked at an agency from 2011 until 2013 Mm -hmm. and then spent eight years in development 
and now have spent a year back in representation. So there wasn't a big time where I was doing a lot of work of finding new gotcha. clients. Mm-hmm. And the fortunate thing and like Gert, I mean, Gotham really put me very quickly on a bunch of teams so that I didn't have to go and like completely find a, a million new clients. Right, right. So when you're asking like the early days of when I was starting out, how did I find clients? I didn't have to. Um, when I was at Gersh as an assistant, mm-hmm. um, I, I mostly just got them from my friends. Mm. Um, I'm friends with a lot of writers and I just made connections and like spaces, like got involved in communities and spaces where there were people who were writers. Mm-hmm. And if I read something, if I would ask to read their stuff and they would send it to me. And if I liked them, then I would share them. Um, so I think community is incredibly important. Right. Mm-hmm. No. And that's, that's something that I think when people ask, and it's not necessarily only in LA, although it does help. Do I need to be in LA to make it? And the general consensus is as a screenwriter, not necessarily as a TV writer, yes, but in either case, it helps because you're in town, you're able to network, you're able to meet other people. Not to say that you can't in Phoenix, Arizona, at the Phoenix Film Festival, or at your at at ASU Film School, or wherever it happens to be. But it just you know, there's a lot more creative community here. That's all. Um, Completely. And so, you know, in the meantime, those online communities, like, you know, what you're cultivating are very important. Um, and uh, we're, I don't want to keep you too, too long, because I'm sure we could ask questions all day from you. <laughs> Although if you're willing to come back, we'll have to have you back on to answer more and more questions. Um, we're nearing an hour and a half. And that's usually where we, we cut it off because we don't want to take up your whole day. But we appreciate your time on Saturday. But I do have one more question here. Blue Rabbit says, what sci-fi subgenre performs well in the marketplace nowadays? Is there a what, particular subgenre? sci-fi subgenre? Subgenre. That performs in the marketplace? I would have to look at, in terms of like sales, um, or uh, there's a million different ways that you could look at answering that question. Mm-hmm. Performing in the marketplace is a broad term, which is do I, what sci-fi uh, is being of scripts or pitches is being sold? Mm-hmm. Um, or are we talking about performance of movies? Are we talking about performance of TV shows? That kind of stuff. Um, to which I will say, I don't have enough data to mm-hmm. answer that question. What I will say in terms of my own experience in terms of science fiction, um, it, the less expensive it is, the better chance it has. And the more I, you know, the more IP driven it is, the better chance it has and the better attachments it has, the better it has. And I think that's going to be the same with most genres mm-hmm. um, and not just science fiction. Um, it just so happens to be harder because it has that money element that other genres may not have. Right. Um, and in terms of subgenres of science fiction, uh, there are, I, I, <laughs> 
I don't think a lot of executives really in the business think about subgenres in the way that I like to categorize them um, because I love science fiction so much that I do talk a lot about like different subgenres mm-hmm. and like how they're interested, but from like a from a fan critical theory standpoint. And I think like the ones that are not, I will say the ones that like definitely don't get sold unless you have like a big name person attached or like space operas. Oh, I see. Gotcha. Space operas really don't, you know, perform in that way unless you're talking about Dune or something like that. Sure. Uh, I don't think I have enough information to answer that question. Um, but in terms of sales, like sci-fi is just hard. Sci-fi is just hard to sell, period. Right. But the, yeah. Uh, and last question, Adrian Manzano says, how can I get in a room as an assistant without a rep? Well, actually, most people who don't have reps become, actually, most assistants aren't reps. Um, so if you're, if you're thinking that you need a rep to get an assistant position, that's not entirely true. Um, some people do, um, although most of my friends who got their assistant or even clients who got their assistant jobs out there, didn't get them through reps at all. And Mm -hmm. only got a rep after they were caught on a show. Mm -hmm. How do you get an assistant job? Great on a show. Great question. I didn't have to do it. So I can only tell you how to get like development jobs and like, you know, management jobs, but you know, the best advice that I can give is be in LA number one um, and start applying for PA positions. We're going to get to the caveats in a minute. Start applying the base, the basic system is mm-hmm. apply for PA positions. Hopefully it's an office PA. And then you sort of work your way up over time to become, you know, a writer's PA and then like, you know, a showrunner's assistant or a writer's assistant or something Mm -hmm. like that. And it's a process that happens over time. um, Usually. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people who are not 22 years old and fresh out of college who can take a minimum wage job. How do you do that? Great question. Something that we've been trying to figure out (laughs) for a lot of us that that care about answering that kind of question. And I don't think we've solved it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so number one thing is you, you have to live in LA. And number two is you just have to network like you've never networked before because somebody is going to have an in on mm-hmm. those and be able to vouch for you and put you up for those jobs. It's not the only way. And I honestly don't even know if my advice is really the best advice that I can give because I didn't have to live it and I'm not in the trenches. Mm-hmm. You get a way that can help you set up, get set up for success for those jobs. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, but yeah, the question kind of confused me a little bit. Like, how can I get in a room as an assistant without yeah. a rep? Or how can I get in a room as an assistant, like getting a job as an assistant? Right. So that was kind of interesting. Like, if either they were an assistant trying to get information. Oh, to- I see. If you are an assistant, how do you get a job in a room if you don't have a rep? Well, actually, right. if you're you already, already on a show, right. then you should be asking. And right. you, sh- you are currently an assistant who is a writer's assistant or a showrunner's assistant on a show. Then mm-hmm. you need to be telling them 
that you want to be staffed. Closed mouths don't get fed. Right. You have to tell him what, tell them what your goals are. You have to ask, you know, the, the writers establish relationships with the writers on the show, especially the showrunner, if you can, Mm -hmm. um, let them know that you want to be staffed, let them know what kind of shows you want to be staffed on, have them read your, ask them to read your stuff. Mm -hmm. Once you've established a clear relationship with them and you trust them and they trust you and they're open to reading your stuff and, you know, take the feedback, get the notes, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, if you're already the writer's assistant, you should be asking for a cut, right? Mm-hmm. on an episode put yourself out there if you're not in a position where you can put yourself out there you don't trust your showrunner or it's a toxic show environment that can be very tough so find your allies in the room um, that can help you meet people in other rooms where you can get those connections right and also if you are not looking for reps at the moment start looking for reps mm-hmm. um and ask around, ask your colleagues how they like their reps. And if they like your writing, would they be willing to refer you? Yeah, no, that's great advice. And uh, what we're talking about referrals, right? It all comes back to that. Yeah, I um, know. It's like, I mean, it's, it's part it's, of it. Sure, right? People say it every week here. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you so much for, for coming on and spending time with us this Saturday morning. I greatly appreciate it. Um, and again, we'll have to have you back on if you're you're willing, because this has been great, and we can probably Anytime. ask questions. More uh, than happy to answer questions. Uh, next Saturday, July 16th at 10 a.m. Pacific, so same time. Next Saturday, we've got showrunner, screenwriter David H. Steinberg from No Good Nick, The Simpsons, American Pie 2, Puss in Boots. So we've got David Steinberg on next week. Thank you again, Hillary. I really appreciate you coming on, and enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.